Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible or if you don't really know your Bible, your way around the Bible, I would encourage you to grab one of the Bibles that should be right in front of you underneath the seat. Uh, It's black. And follow along. The sermons that we preach here are not designed to entertain, and we we don't seek to diminish what the Word says. We try to just simply give you what the Word actually says. And so it's very important that you have your Bible open, that you follow along, um, that you be able to see. In other words, all I'm saying is, I don't want you to assume what I'm saying is correct. I want you to look down with me when I am reading, when I ask you notice, and I want you to look and notice. I want you to see. Yes, it says that. And then ask yourself, if that's what it says, then what must I do? And it might be simple, something rather major, or it also might be something very minor, just simply a, a small adjustment in what perhaps you've always believed on one thing or another. Um, as, as we're going through this passage, um, I'm going to at times let you know the page number of the Bible if you're using that pew Bible, that's what they're called, um, and I'll let you know the page number if, in, in fact, you're not sure where to find these things. Uh, the worst thing you can do is get so lost in trying to find your way around the Bible that you don't hear because you're still looking. Now, one other thing I'll point out before we get into the actual message is if you pick up that Bible, you'll find that the page, the page numbers just function like any normal book. But once it gets to the New Testament, so the Bible is broken into two different parts, the Old Testament and New Testament, the page number starts over again. So uh, example here would be on page 93 in the New Testament. So get into the back part of your Bible and find page 93, and you'll actually find the passage that we'll be looking at. So in Acts chapter 3, I'll, I'll read for you verses 19 to 26. This is where Peter now brings his sermon, his message that he's given to this crowd at the temple to its conclusion. So he says, repent, therefore, and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him. You shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. 
It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, quick review. What we're going to look at today, and this will be our last focus in this chapter, is verses 19 and 20. I want you to begin to look at that in maybe eyes that you've never seen, with eyes that have never seen what's actually written there, and hopefully we can draw out the beauty of what that passage is saying. Now, last week we talked about the fact that that the people of Israel were were guilty of sin, just like all people, but they were guilty of, at this point in time, a very particular Issue, and that was that they had sinned and willfully done so in the murder and false accusations against Jesus Christ. That God had sent the one that they claimed they were waiting for, the one who would save them from their sins, the one who would set all things right, the King of Israel. The Bible uses all sorts of terms to speak of this one, and we looked at that in one sermon all by itself, where it, it speaks of the prophet. It speaks of the Christ and other various terms that he chooses to use. All of this he's saying, this one whom you claim to be waiting for, you crucified. And then he adds, but God raised him from the dead. We talked last week about though it was a willful sin, it was also done in ignorance, meaning they did not grasp that he really was the one promised. They thought he was false, and therefore they thought they were righteous in denying him and rejecting him. And so in that, there is a lot of hope, because as an Israelite, they understood that a sin of ignorance could be forgiven. And it was to that that he offers to them then the responsibility that they have, and that is, because you did this in ignorance, what is the answer? Repent, turn have this change of mind. And then he adds a second phrase or term, it's return. Why is he saying it that way? Well, because this is Israel. These are God's chosen people. This is the nation God established to bring salvation to the rest of the world. This is why he quotes the Abrahamic covenant uh, in verse uh, 25. In your seed, he told Abraham, your offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. And the key offspring would be Jesus himself. And so he's saying, return to your God. The same thing we've listened to uh, Grayson say in every possible way through this trip through the prophets in the Old Testament is the same thing even to this day where Peter is talking to them. You have gone your sinful ways, you're under the judgment of God, and you are still claiming you're waiting for him. He came, you killed him, God raised him from the dead, so repent. Turn and have this change of mind where you see that he is who he said he was, and therefore it begins to guide you in a different direction in your life. The promise then is threefold. Notice what it says again in verse 19. There are three promises attached to the one who repents. We only looked at the first point last week because it's such a wonderful thing and I wanted to drive it home. He said, repent therefore and return. The first thing that happens is that your sins may be wiped away. 
The second thing that happens, depending on your aversion, uh, it's in 19 or in verse 20, but the second one is something called the times of refreshing may come. And then the third thing is that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. So sin's forgiven, this thing called times of refreshing, and Jesus comes back. It's that simple. And yet this is immensely important for you to get your head around. And the first step of that is coming to grips that your sins literally could be wiped away. Sin, as you know, is your enemy, and you're really good at it. You do a lot of it, a lot more than you admit to anyone. It is what we are apart from Jesus Christ. We are born in sin. We are, by our very nature, corrupt. And therefore, as, as people who are corrupt due to sin, we commit sin. It's not because we commit sin that we stain ourselves. It's that we're committing sin because we're already stained with sin. And so sin then becomes our enemy, and it becomes the tool for which Satan works his great evil And the wound that it gives to each one of us is eternal death. And this is why I was trying to urge you with our brother uh, whose death is imminent. We all love to talk about life, but we spend our whole life avoiding death, and yet it's chasing you like a hound, and it will capture you. The power of sin is death. Even if you or I could stop sinning on our own right now, which we can't, but let's just say we did, it will never resolve the fact that we have done innumerable amounts of sin in the past. Nothing that we do today can resolve what was done already. We carry with us the judgment of guilt. And yet the promise is still here for all who believe. He says, You repent and you return, and the promise is a wonderful one. It is your sins are blotted or wiped away. Is that not a great promise? Is that not something for you to hold on to and and, and yearn for and rejoice in? It's so grand, and yet I find as a pastor that Christians struggle with this far more than they ought, but it's just the reality of being human. We are constantly assaulted by our own whispers and shouts of our failings and sins. We, we actually resist going to the Father in our time of need because we've sinned yet again. Even though the Bible says that Christ has made the throne room of God absolutely open to us so that we might boldly go in with absolute confidence We stand on the outside with our hands in our pockets, shuffling around, guilty upon guilty, because we did it again. Our sins just beat us up, and we let them beat us up, and we're resistant. I cannot tell you the number of times I've sat with a a man or a woman, and they're and and giving counsel, and they're talking about this or that, and and I finally just say, "Can I ask you a simple question? Yeah, have you just simply confessed that to the Lord?" And how many times they say, what? It's like, confess. The promise is what? Forgiveness. He's always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. I know, but. No, there's no but. Confess your sins. He's willing and eager. God has made the way available to every one of us through his son. 
But all of that is because we forget about the son. We forget that we have this high priest, like the Bible describes, like John read in Hebrews, that this high priest has made that entrance way into the presence of our heavenly father. And that the entrance way is not fraught with threats. That entrance way into his throne room is wide open and welcoming to all who wish to come in the name of Christ. He comes open and welcoming to you, and he says, come to me. We're told to come boldly, but we sulk and we shuffle. And it's only because we're listening to the whispers and the voices. So why, child, why, child of God, do you do that? The Bible says in Micah that God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea. So answer this question, if you might. I speak here to the Christian. Why do you get in a boat, row out to the middle of the depths of the sea, dive in, go to the bottom of the full deepest part of that ocean, find the chest in which your sins are bound forever, spend the time unlocking at it, all that you might gaze upon your sin yet again, and then recondemn yourself? Why? They're gone. And I'm looking at faces that still don't believe me. Repent and return and your sins are blotted away. That's the promise. Paul says that as clearly as you can say it, in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do you feel condemned? Because it's not God doing it. It's not God. You say, but you don't know how good of a sinner I am. You're right, I don't. I know how good of a sinner I am. But I don't care about that. What's better and more important is what a great Savior I have. Do you believe that? Do you find rest there? Even now, as we prepare to go into the rest of this message, can I not urge you yet again to come to grips with the fullness of what God offers in his son? Well, this passage tells us that truth. Sins are wiped away. They're never going to be rewritten upon our record, ever. Instead, in Jesus Christ, there's only one word on your record, and it is righteous. Well, in verse 19 then, looking down at it, I want to get into some technicalities here, and there's no way I can avoid this, so I apologize for some of you that may say, what? But we're going to get into some technical aspects of the Scripture because Peter does. Peter's the one who's doing the preaching here. We have purpose statements, and you need to learn to find those because they help you see what is the point. There's In verse 19, there's something called a near purpose, and I'll explain that in a moment. And then in verse 20 or 19 and 20, depending on your translation, there are two remote purposes, and I'll explain it. 
Now, if you have the English Standard Version, which I know many of you do, they put it all in verse 20. If you use another translation like I do with the New American Standard, um, they put it in verse 19 and 20. It's just depending on the translator. But what it's going on is, is the way it's, it's written in the, in the original language is that the first close purpose, near purpose, that happens when one repents and returns to God is that the sins are wiped away. That's, that happens right away. That's what we have now. But there's two other purposes that are technically called remote purposes that are also present and true, and we forget about them, and they're actually better than your sins getting wiped away. Get your head around that. I can't. I struggle to get people to believe their sins are wiped away. And, he, and Peter's like, dude, that's not even the good stuff. The good stuff is afterward. The wiping away of the sin is merely so that you are now fit to enjoy these two things. But if you don't have your sins wiped away, there is nothing about the times of refreshing, and we'll explain that. There's nothing about those times of refreshing that you will find refreshing, and you will certainly not rejoice at the coming of your Lord, because he will come as your judge, and you are guilty. But if your sins are wiped away, come Lord Jesus. So these two purposes are really one, but they're, they're written in two as two, so we'll talk about them. The first is this thing called a times of refreshing, and the second is that return of Jesus Christ. And so I want to explore that with you today, and I want you to carefully follow with your Bible. They're not hard to see, but they are very pregnant with meaning, and they are full of ideas that are built upon the Old Testament. And again, a lot of people tend not to know their Old Testament as well as they ought to. And so Peter is able to throw out this little phrase like the times are refreshing. And you and I are like, okay, whatever. But for a Jew, it would bring a whole host of thoughts to mind. And you would see just a wonderful, wonderful promise built into that. Now, one of the things I find also interesting as Christians is that we tend to treat the Christian faith as a backward-looking reality, meaning we t- spend a lot of time looking backward at, at what Christ has done. They, he died and rose again. But that's not all that the Bible talks about. He talks about, and he's coming again. And the Bible makes the Christian faith a very forward-looking faith. But we tend to forget that. We tend to look only at the backward and forget the forward, yet the Bible would treat it as this is something we ought to anticipate and live for, what is to come. So let me just quickly show you that. Go to Titus. If you do have the Pew Bible, it's page 168 in the New Testament. But Titus chapter 2, and I'll just give you a quick example because this passage is very similar to the passage we have in front of us in Acts in Titus chapter 2, this little tiny book, a wonderful book, chapter 2, this, the last chapter of it, verses 11 through 13, he says, for, and we always, when we see the word for at the beginning of the verse, we say what? For this reason, for this reason, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But now he switches to future, looking for the blessed hope and, so that's one thing, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Verse 14 is glorious, so we'll finish it with that. Who gave himself for us in our place, for what purpose? So that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This thing teaches us, this passage teaches us to have a forward-looking hope that's based upon Christ's saving work in the past. He says, because of what Christ has done, and that's what he's talking about in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. What was that grace? Well, it was Christ. So in the past, he sent his son into the world, So now, having that hope, because we rest in Jesus Christ, verse 12 says we are to repent. He says a different way here, but it means the same thing. Repent and live a life of repenting, where we are walking and in a life that denies ungodliness, fights against sin, resists those things. He says, so the past event affects our present life. And then verse 13 says, while we look to the future, how, how often do you do that? Let me just ask that. How often do you find yourself contemplating the coming of the Lord, the, his appearing, looking for that, yearning for that, aware of the certainty of that event, that Christ is going to come, and this thing called the blessed hope. These two events actually are the same as what we find back in our passage in Acts 3, he just chose to call them the times of refreshing and that Christ may come. But there's a few more I'll just quickly spit out for you to show you that forward-looking mindset. And the better you train your mind that way, you know what? You'll spend less time mourning and weeping over the things of this age that keep disappointing you. We keep hoping that this age and this present age that we dwell in is going to deliver to us something, and it never is going to. But we have extremely good marketing techniques in the world, and they keep telling you if you get that thing and this thing and buy those, that property, et cetera, et cetera, finally all of your wants will be met. And then you get there and you find out it's a cul-de-sac of disappointment. In 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul says that we are to be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly, again, wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse Timothy 6, verse 14, So that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he says, you are to live a certain way, anticipating the fact that Christ will return. And it should affect the way you live now. In fact, the fact that you don't do those things simply means you've kept your eye off the prize, and that is that Christ will return. 
All of this is very similar to what Israel was doing as a nation. They were waiting. They were anticipating that God would send them the Messiah, the one who would be Savior. But then when he did come, they killed him because they didn't think that was him. There will be countless millions on the day of his return who will for eternity gnash their teeth because they thought they had one more day. So what will bring about the restoration of this world? What is going to bring about the reign of Jesus Christ on earth? What will bring about the return of our Lord? The answer is actually right here. And the answer is very simple, and I'll explain it now, but let me give you the simplest answer. That will happen when Israel as a nation repents. That will happen when the nation Israel repents. So let's do a quick exegesis. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about Exegesis is simply a fancy word of dealing with the Bible passage and pulling out what's there. A lot of people like to put into a passage what they want it to be there, but an exege- what you do in exegesis, which is what a, a pastor or teacher should do with the Bible, is simply draw out from the Bible what's right there. And we're going to do it together. I'm going to show you some points here. This would be a great place if you are given to making notes in your Bible and drawing lines and circles that you would want to do it. So let me take you through the passage and show you that what I just said is correct, and then we'll spend the rest of our time proving it. First of all, we know in verse 19 that Peter is now coming to a conclusion simply because he uses the word therefore. So he's made all kinds of statements, and now he's drawing everything to a close, and he gathers up everything that he just says, and he's saying, therefore. So we have a conclusion here that he's making. So whenever you come to a conclusion, you want to stop and, and think about, okay, what what is the point then? He said a lot of really neat words, but they're, so what? What do, we, what's, what do we do there for? Then he gives purposes. He says, therefore, the first purpose in all of the things that I have said to you is to repent and return. Why? And notice the word that or so that. It, it's good for you to get in the habit of underlining or circling or putting a square around, around that just so your eyes can go to it and maybe say purpose or result depending on what it is. This one's a purpose. The first one is known in the Greek as a near purpose. The first purpose is, as I've already said, your sins may be blotted away. So he's telling the people of Israel, come, repent, return, and your sins will be blotted away. Then second... He has another, in order that, or so that, in your Bible. That's your second purpose, and it's two in number. These are called remote purpose, as I said already. It's twofold. Something called the times of refreshing will come, and, and this is important, and the Father will send back Jesus, who is the Christ, and he's appointed for who? According to that verse. Appointed for who? 
Well, it just, yeah, but what does he say? Appointed for you. And who is the you? Mike, you were correct. It's Israel. He's talking to Israel here. In fact, this is why in verse 26, he says, for you what? First, God raised up his servant. Because for Israel, they are his people, and God sent his, his savior, their savior into the land of Israel, to the people of Israel, to call them to repentance. Of course, they didn't, but they will. So what we have here now is a, a then in verse 21, a, what's called a temporal statement, all right? A temporal statement is just a nice way of saying he now connects it into a time situation, in time and space. He says that Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, and now he gives this relative phrase called whom, heaven, what? What's the next word? Must receive until. There's that word, until. So now we have a time word here, so we can say, oh, so we now know that we're dealing with space and time until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So he says that, that heaven must have and maintain and keep Jesus until something has happened. Does you see that? It's not hard. It's right there. That word must receive the word must is actually a lot more important. If you go to my Bible study, the thing I consistently um, talk to you about is that it's those little words that we ignore that are actually the more important words. And we're like all about these big fancy words, but really it's the little ones because they, they control the logic and the flow of the text. The word must is an actual word in the Greek. It's the Greek uh, word day, D-E-I in English. And it speaks of necessity, meaning it's not optional. Heaven must receive and keep the Lord until this happens. Until that happens, Christ cannot come. It's that simple. And so some might even already rebel and say, well, are you saying he's, he's not sovereign? He is, and it has been sovereignly ordained that he will be in heaven until these things happen and it's an absolute necessity. In fact, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, and of course he wrote Luke as well, he loves this little word day. And whenever he uses it, he primarily will use it as a prophetic marker. He's speaking of things that prophetically must have happened or will happen. And so uh, just one example off the top of my head. In the early part of Luke, the parents head back home and they find out that Jesus isn't with them, right? And so they go looking for him and he's in the temple and he's confounding the priests there with his answers. And they're like, what are you doing? And he said, did you not know that I must be here? He wasn't just doing it because they seemed like it. It was a necessity that he be there. I must be in my father's house. It's necessary for me to be here. And all the way through the book of Luke and all the way through the book of Acts, Luke uses this word in a very precise way to drive home these points. 
So the return of Jesus Christ now becomes contingent upon something, and that something is spelled out for us in verse 21, until literally the times or seasons of restoration. Now, you may not know what that means, but it's pretty important if that's what brings Jesus back, right? So these times, he says, are that which were displayed and taught where? By the prophets. Which is why I have Grayson teaching from the prophets. So that you can hear from him all of these things that the prophets keep prophesying and promising about the Savior, not just that he would come, but also the fullness of his work. And now we find it here that God spoke through the mouth of the prophets. So these Israelites who know the Old Testament and they know these prophecies, they're going to be hearing that and they're going to be tracking through all of these passages of that, that they know that Grayson is teaching you. So let, let's go into it now. What we have in this first remote purpose in verse 19 is called the times of refreshing. And that is, it, it's literally the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom is connected to the repentance of Israel. For those of you who have no idea what the millennial kingdom means, I can only tell you that you have a couple of options. I, I did a, a short series on the kingdom of God that you can find on the, um, what do you call that thing that I'm always yakking about? The app. And you can get the, uh, you can hear that whole series on the kingdom of God. I also preached all the way verse by verse through the entire book of Revelation. And you can get those and you can listen to those. We can't just stop and talk at length about it. Here And it's also a point where people have disagreements over, and so that makes it, it's not that the concept is hard, it's that we make it so hard because there are so many arguments about. But simply put, go, keep your finger here and go to Revelation 19 and 20, right at the very far back of your Bible, and just go to Revelation 19, and I'll just show you what I'm talking about. In verse 11 of 19... What you have is, this is describing the very end of what we would call this age, this present age we live in. All right, and so we've gone through a lot of stuff in the book of Revelation, and now an angel has come, and he is prophesying and telling John what is to come. And so in verse 10, John's so blown away by the, this angel that he seeks to worship, and he says, don't worship me. And then in verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he, and this is Christ, he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with robe, a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. For what purpose? In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit upon them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Kind of nasty, huh? And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped his image, those who were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is describing the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus that we just saw in Acts says it cannot help happen until these times of restoration. Until that time, this cannot happen. But when it happens, this is what awaits those who are in rebellion. Then in verse tw- chapter 20, verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him. Why? For what purpose? So that he should not deceive the nations any longer until, there's that time word again, until the thousand years were completed after these things, he must be released for a short time. Must. There's that word day. And then I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That phrase over and over again, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. That's what millennium, a millennium means. It's a thousand It's the reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. It's that simple. Don't try to make it more complex than that. It's just simply that. And that when Christ comes, that's found for us in verse chapter 19. The next thing that happens after that is this establishment of Christ's reign for a thousand years. And that, beloved, that thousand-year reign is what is meant by the phrase times of refreshing in our passage. It's the only time in the Bible it's ever used, ever. But it, it carries with it full meaning to any Jew because it's filled, this idea of these times of refreshing is something that was 
taught and used uh, as a way of explaining the future hope of Israel, that there would come a day that the Messiah would come, he would reign and finally put the enemies of Israel under his feet, and it would be now a time of rest or refreshment to the Israelite. That's the idea. The imagery of refreshing is one of a long, cool drink in the midst of a great time of great heat and suffering or or ordeal. It's how the body then is rejuvenated and refreshed. It's where, where not just for one individual, but for the whole of creation, it is able to take a deep breath and rejoice again. It's refreshed. Why? Well, let me explain it. In Isaiah, that's page 517, if you have the Pew Bible of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 44... We'll be here very briefly, so if you're not real good at finding these, just listen. It's more important to hear it. But chapter 44, verses 2 through 6. Isaiah is talking on behalf of God as prophet to Israel, his chosen people. That's verse 1. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Jacob is not just a person. It's the nation, Israel. And you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams upon the ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your Descendants, they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. This is what we just read in Revelation. It is talking about this time that Israel was looking forward to when they would finally be refreshed, when they would finally have this this um, pouring out of the Spirit, but the whole of the nation would become like a person finally getting a cool drink and finding refreshment. Then go over to another one uh, on page 116, or seven, one, 615, boy, I messed that up. 615, or Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, and I'll show you another, and there's many others we could do, but I only have so much time. So Ezekiel 34, verse 20 to 26. Now you have to understand that up in verse 10, God is rebuking the the leaders of Israel, because they're unfaithful shepherds. They're not leading the people of Israel right. Instead of being a faithful shepherd, leading them to the fields where they can find food and drink like a good shepherd, they're devouring the sheep and destroying them. So he rebukes them in verse 10. But then in verse 17, he switches and doesn't call them shepherds. Now he just says that they're sheep. They're sheep just like the other ones. So he switches the metaphor, the image a little bit. But he's like, you're taking all the food. You're not caring for the other sheep. You're just all about yourself and what you get out of all of this. And so he's very angry. And so now he's rebuking them. And so in verse 20, he says, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. That's what I was just referring to. Why? Because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust with all the weak uh, with your horns, or thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I, so here's this promise of the coming Messiah again. I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and the other. And then I will set over them one shepherd. This is Jesus, the good shepherd, my servant. Remember we talked about how that servant picture in the Old Testament was talking about the coming Savior. My servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and will eliminate the harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places around my my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season, and they will be showers of blessing. It's passages like this that the teachers of Israel began to talk of this time when the land and the people of Israel would be refreshed, that they would come and see the kindness of God again. Remember, these passages are being written in the midst of judgment. They're having nations invade and taking off their people all because of their sin. And this time of refreshing is tightly connected to the physical presence of Jesus Christ, who is established there to care for them and to reign with them. And so the Bible picks this imagery up all over the place, and somehow we spend a lot of time trying to say that it's not saying what it says. Everything it says is wonderful and beautiful, but before we can speak of that, we should consider the second part of what Peter is saying about this repentance, not only of the times of refreshing, but also the coming of Israel. It's a call to Israel to repent. And so the return of Christ, he makes it very simple, repent therefore and return that he may send Jesus the Christ. You must repent and return Israel and then I'll send Jesus, who is the Messiah. In the Gospels, we see John the Baptist come, and he's preaching to the Israelites, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus comes into the scene, and he begins to preach the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand or near. The disciples raised up and sent out, and they all preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So he's calling the people of God to repent, the nation. Individuals are repenting, but the nation continues to resist, to the point that Jesus even weeps, right, before he is brought and crucified. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you are not willing it is just that simple reality is that, that Israel was still not in repentance. Now, why, we can talk about in just a moment. But the reality is that they were rejecting. The same point is brought up by Peter in these early chapters of Acts, that the problem with the Israel is that they were still in sin. 
that God had been faithful to his promise. He had brought Jesus, the Christ, the promised one. They rejected him, killed him. He raised him from the dead. But then we also find in chapter 2 of Acts that that was all part of God's plan, which then kind of makes your head go push. It wasn't a mistake that Jesus died. It was according to God's predetermined plan. So now you understand something bigger is going on. But he is to return, and so we need to repent. All right, so let's talk about now then. We've been around since Christ ascended into heaven for over 2,000 years now, and Christ has not returned. Why? Why has he not returned? Well, it's a lot bigger than just that. And somehow I'm going to try to unpack this in the time we have. The reason Christ has not returned is that Israel has not repented. Israel as a nation has not returned to Jesus Christ, but it's even bigger than that. There's this thing the Bible and the New Testament talks about, and they they use the term mystery. So turn with me to Romans. Keep your finger there, but Romans chapter 16 at the very end, it's page 129. Verses 25 and 26, and we'll see the first of this. This could be a whole sermon. I'm just touching on these things lightly. The mystery. And the mystery here is about the church. That's us. And Gentiles. That's anyone who's not a Jew. In verses 25 and 6, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of what? Of the mystery. What is this mystery? Well, it which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is made known or manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So here is this mystery hidden, but now revealed that God's mercy is going outward among the nations. Go over to Ephesians and just go to chapter one. Does my heart good to hear all of you turning. I appreciate it. Now, all the way through Ephesians, he uses this term. I preached all the way through this book, so you can go back and hear those sermons on these specific passages if you're wanting to learn more. But in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, he says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ with the view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things upon the earth. And so in here, he says, this mystery is that God is going to sum up all things under Jesus Christ. That's the essence of what he is saying there. Then go over to chapter 2, and he picks up this mystery idea again. In verses 11 through 16, Therefore... Remember you, the Gentiles, again, he's talking to people like you and I, remember that you, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, don't worry about it. If you don't know what's going on there, it's just, 
in the church was a real tension between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Jews kind of thought that the Gentiles didn't really belong and they would treat them poorly and all built around this idea of the circumcisions. But don't worry about that. Just understand there's this real tension. He says, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. That's us. We didn't have the Messiah. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, you, the Gentile who was formerly far off, had now been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Why? For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Israel or Jew and Gentile in this sense, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. Hang on, I want to make certain I don't go too far. Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in him Self, he might make the two into one, and that word new there is completely new, one completely unique new man establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. What is the mystery? The mystery is a, an, an, in addition to uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles is that God is at work doing a new work and it's called the church. It's that Jew, Gentiles aren't stuck into Israel. The Jews who come to faith during this time are part of the church and the Gentile who comes to faith in Christ are part of the church. And he's building this one new man right now. And that is the wonderful mystery that somehow we miss all the time. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, he really wants us to get how wonderfully saved we are. He says, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise found where? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is that great mystery. So with that, Lord help us, go to Romans 11, which is page 126, and there's no way we can go in depth through this chapter. We have, though, this mystery explained. Now, this part, we don't have the term mystery used, but this is where Paul unpacks it. In chapter 11 of Romans, what we find out is why has it been 2,000 years and Christ still hasn't returned? Well, we know it's because Israel hasn't repented. So when does Israel repent? Chapter 11 explains when. So starting in verse 7. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, 
And what is it Israel is seeking for? It's seeking for that salvation. It has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. The rest were hardened. The Israelites, in other words, who were chosen by God, have received that salvation. But the rest were what? It says it. They were hardened. And then he says, and don't be shocked by this. You may not like it, but don't be shocked by it. Just as it is written, God actively gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them eyes to see not and ear, he, ears to hear not down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. That's, if you're a Jew, that's hard words. He's saying, the reason you don't believe is God has hardened you not to believe. It's that simple. But Israel has to believe or Christ won't return. So is God done with Israel? Well, Paul answers it. I say then, in verse 11, they, they being Israel, did not stumble, and this is a purpose statement, for the purpose to fall. Now, the word fall there sounds like they trip and skin their knee, right? Kids do it all the time. The word there for fall is to be utterly swept away, to be destroyed, gone forever. So I'll, I'll use a different term just so we don't miss it. I say then, they, Israel, did not stumble for the purpose to be swept away utterly, did they? And then he uses the strongest no, the Greek language knows. May it never be. But by their transgression or sin, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. For what purpose? Why is God saving you and I, according to this verse? Look down and you answer it for me. To make who? Israel jealous. Well, that kind of sucks. I mean, it's like, I thought he just saved me because he loved me. You know, and I always kind of thought I was cuddly. And no, nope. why did he say Matt? He said Matt to make Israel jealous. Wow, that's good. already minds start going. This is crazy, and you understand now why it's called a mystery. You're like, okay. Now, if there, Israel's transgression becomes a riches for the world, meaning the non-Jew, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? He's saying, look, if it's this good now, while God hardens them and he's saving you, how much better will it be when he then turns his attention back to Israel? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, in inasmuch then as I am an apostle to of the Gentiles, I'm the one sent to the Gentiles, us, I magnify my ministry. In other words, he's like, I am trying to do as much as I can for the cause of Christ because I'm a, an apostle for the Gentiles. Why? If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. I, I'm so now you find out Paul is not out there among the Gentiles because he finds them cuddly. 
He's out among the Gentiles so that he might save some Jews along the way by making them jealous that, look, the Spirit of God is saving these people who we've always seen as our, our enemies, and yet God's showing them mercy. Why isn't he showing me mercy? And then some hear the gospel, and they repent, and they believe, and they're brought into the church as well. Now, I'm going to skip some verses, not because I'm afraid of them, but just they require too much explanation. Understand that he then starts talking about these pieces of dough and then these branches and the stump. The dough is and the stump are the same meaning, and it's talking about the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are not Israel. They're not Israel. They're the fathers. They're the patriarchs. Out of them came the nation Israel. But they're not Israel. And Israel loves to claim Abraham as their father. Well, yeah, but he's also the father of all who believe because he wasn't Israel. He didn't even found Israel. And so the lump that he talks about is from the patriarchs and same with this, um, the 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 stump, if you will. And he says that the branches which represent Israel, God has broken them off and he's set them aside. And he's now taking other branches and grafting them into this life that's found in the patriarchs, the fathers. And those are you and I, that we enjoy our salvation through these promises God has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically though, Abraham. So we don't belong there, but God graciously stuck us into that stump, not into Israel, but into the promises given to the Father. That's different. Some of you know what I'm getting at. Some of you don't care. That's okay. Just understand that you're in these promises because God puts you there. You don't belong there. But then later, God will take Israel and re-graft them back into that trunk where they belong. Let me see how far I have to take you. So that's his point all the way down to verse 24. Then he says, for I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this, what he uses, mystery. Do you see it? I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Then what's the very next word if you use my translation? Until, what's that kind of word? It's a temporal word, a time word, right? So how long will this partial hardening happen to Israel? Until the fullness of the Gentiles, that's you and I, have come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. So when does Christ return? When Israel repents. When will Israel repent according to verse 25? when all of the Gentiles God has chosen come in and not a day earlier. It's kind of cool. It's not kind of, it's really cool. Um, He goes on. From the standpoint in verse 28, from the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved. And he's really dealing, because in the book of Romans, he's actually dealing with the tension that's going on between the Jew and the Gentile Christian. 
And he's, he's trying to get the Jews to realize, look, the, Gentile is, the Gentiles are not your enemies, especially those who have come to faith in Christ. He's like, they're your brothers and sisters. But he's then looking at the Gentiles who start thinking they're all something special. And he's like, no, Israel is still my beloved. And it will always be my beloved. And yet at the same time, I have hardened them for a period of time until I gather you in. That's the mystery. When does he come? He comes when God has gathered them. We're running out of time, so the other passages you can look at in Matthew 24, he's talking about, again, the return of the Lord, and it says that all the nations shall see him and mourn. When they see the Lord coming, they will mourn. But he's actually referencing a passage in Zechariah, another great prophet. In fact, I don't think we're going to get to Zechariah. But Zechariah chapter 12, where it says that when the nation Israel sees their Messiah come, they will see him whom they pierced, whom they killed, and they will mourn, and then God will save them. When will Israel believe? He will, Israel as a nation will believe when the fullness of the Gentiles have been gathered in. And then at that time, Christ will return. And as he returns, they will see him. They will realize who he is. The spirit will be poured out upon them and they will believe and they will be saved. And we will enter into what's called the millennial kingdom. So what about us? What about us? Well, we have a wonderful picture the church is very clear that it will co-reign with Jesus Christ. So in 1 Thessalonians, that's page 160 in the New Testament, turn there. It's a passage you hear all the time at funerals when you commit the body to the ground. Fourteen through eighteen. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So when Christ comes, if we're alive, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. Why? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and who rises first? The dead. The dead in Christ, right? The dead in Christ. All who are believers shall be raised. Their body will be resurrected and joined with their spirit, and they will now be changed, and sin will no longer be theirs. Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So it's kind of like they're heading up to meet Christ as he's coming from the clouds. And halfway up there, we are shooting up there too, which is kind of crazy to think about. But we're changed as well. So it's not the body and the, and the sin that we fight with and hate. We're changed just like our brothers and sisters who were dead and now are raised. And we go up to... And we remain, hang on, where I'm at, at, verse 17, we remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where in the air, and then thus we will always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another. 
This whole passage is about the return of Christ. What's it like? It's, it's a time of unparalleled blessing. When Christ returns, he establishes his kingdom, millennial kingdom, a thousand years. We're not there suffering in any way. We are there now in our resurrected bodies, co-reigning with him. It will be a time, as Peter says, a time of refreshing the glory of his reign where his presence will be upon all of the earth that the nations will come and see and worship him. The prophets of old talk about this time and time again that the many nations shall come to learn and to worship him on his holy hill. The Bible talks about how the glory of Yahweh will be revealed to us in this day. But it also talks about the fact that God will, in some way or another, move back the curse of creation upon creation due to our sin. And so people will live unusually long lives. In fact, it says in Isaiah 65 that if you die at the age of 100, it's because you were accursed by God. 100, that's because you were accursed. In chapter 11, Isaiah talks about how the, uh, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the cow and the bear will graze together. Peace is going to reign. Why? Because Christ is the king. So Micah tells us that the nations will not lift up a sword against nation. They will beat their, plowsh- uh, their swords into plowshares. He talked about how it's going to be a time of unparalleled uh, glory in just creation itself so that the guy who is harvesting the grape is overtaking the guy planting the grapes. It's just bursting. And finally, true justice will be seen. Why? Because Jesus is king. So think about the things that you and I hate about life. What's on our minds We're always being haunted by death. We see lack of justice in one way or the other, right and left. We wish that there would be finally someone who would uh, simply lead with righteousness, right? And we always look at the wrong places and with the wrong people to bring this about. We look at fallen men, fallen systems, fallen ideas, and we wonder why we keep coming up with air in our hands rather than substance. It's because as Christians, we should instead be eagerly waiting for the return of our Lord. The promise is still true, beloved. The command is still valid to the nation of Israel. Repent, return. And so he finishes this out. I'll just briefly show you it here in Acts 3. Just listen, though. In verse 22, then, he says, that Jesus is a prophet that was promised to Israel who would be like Moses, but they have to listen to him and follow him. And if they don't, they will be destroyed. And for 2,000 years, we have watched this happen time and time again. In verses 24 and 5, it's the promise that he gave to Abraham that through him one would come who would be a blessing to all the nations. That was Christ. And when they see him for that, when he returns... He will be theirs. In verse 26, he's the great servant of Yahweh, promised in the Old Testament. And what's his task? To turn Israel from their wickedness. To this day, many Jews have been saved, and we rejoice in that, but we do not think that that is the finished goal of of God. He is waiting for that day where he gathers you and I to himself, and when the fullness of that has been gathered, he will bring 
his Israel home. The answer for us all, though, right now is very simple then. What is it? To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise is simple. You will be saved. There's no doubt in those words. There's no way you can make them mean something else. The promise is true because God is true. So you who come today and you've sat through this whole sermon, who do you believe? Do you believe in Christ or something else? Is it Jesus plus something? Then you're lost. But when you rest in Jesus, you will be saved. Jesus calls you, come, believe, follow him. Turn from your wicked ways, turn to him, and you will find sins wiped away. You'll be gathered into the body of Jesus Christ called the church, and you will await the day when he will change you into his likeness. Let's pray. So Father, with so many different things in this message, I pray that our mind can comprehend again the vastness of what you're doing, how Paul at the end of Romans 11 just blows up with his mind. He says, who can know your way and who has ever been your counselor? Everything that you are and everything you do is yours. I pray that we be careful before we start uttering things that we do not know, but instead that we would just make all the more certain of your choosing and calling of us as your children, that we trust ourselves only to Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray for the Ancoses even now as they're going through a difficult time, but not one without hope. I thank you for that. I thank you for what a kind God you are. Help us to see that, rest in that, and then go and proclaim that. In your son's holy name, amen.